0: Thank you for checking out the sermon at Hope Church. We exist to connect people to live the life of a Jesus follower. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just want to make you aware of a couple of things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you have access to other resources, information about who we are, and where we're going as a church, as well as an opportunity to give to what God is doing through our church. Once again, thanks for checking out this sermon. Please let us know if there's any questions you have, or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. We do share the gospel because we love lost people, but even more... share the gospel because we love Jesus who loves lost people what incredible worship wow y'all get to enjoy this every week Uh, don't take it for granted amen Uh, my heart is full and uh, I am I am ready to see what God has to say from his word if you would take your bible And join me in the text that we just sang, Romans chapter 15, verse 14 through 24, the marks of a Great Commissioned people. Uh, As you're turning there, let me say what an honor it is to be here. Uh, I have known of your church for a long time. I love your pastor and his family. They're dear to me. And uh, so there's a sense in which I want to say up front, uh, I'm preaching to a Great Commissioned church, and so I don't have anything really new to say. Uh, I want to remind you as Paul says of some things from this text, but uh, I would love to see this church multiplied a thousand, ten thousand, a hundred thousand times over all across America and around the world because I believe if our churches had the heart and passion of this church, we might could actually be the generation to see every tribe, tongue, people and nation hear the gospel. It is going to happen. Uh, We've been promised in Revelation chapter 7 that around the throne, there will be people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation worshiping the Lamb and celebrating salvation. It's going to happen. Wouldn't it be awesome if it happened in our generation? There's certainly every reason to pray for that. So Romans chapter 15, verse 14 through 24, my friend David Platt calls it an extended missionary fundraising letter. And there's a sense in which that is true because Paul has spent 15 chapters uh, delineating the glories of the gospel and the beauty of salvation that we have in Christ. And then he gets to the end, and you keep in mind, he's never been to the church at Rome. So he's writing them in anticipation of coming to see them. And so here's what he says in verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness Filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But, some translations have the word nevertheless. On some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. Because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Now let me stop. I'm going to do something for the remainder of my message when it comes to that word Gentiles. It's the Greek word ethne. We get our English word ethnic from it. But I don't think it communicates as clearly uh, as I would want it to what Paul has in mind when he uses the word. I think this will help. If you go to the last chapter in the book of Matthew, chapter 28, you have there what we commonly refer to as the Great Commission. And there Jesus says to the disciples, go and make disciples of all the what? Nations. It's the same Greek word, ethne. And so, for the remainder of our time this morning, every time you see the word Gentiles, I'm going to use the word nations. And then I'm going to explain exactly what I think Paul had in mind when he used and when Jesus used that particular word. So, he says again, verse 16, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the nations in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the nations may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. "...to bring the nations to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my aim, my ambition, I aspire to preach the gospel. Not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written... Those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This then is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, and he makes an amazing statement here, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing. As I go to Spain and be helped on my journey there by you, once I've enjoyed your company for a while. In July of 2008, my life was changed forever by an experience in Pattaya, Thailand. My wife, Charlotte, and I had gone there to spend several weeks with a number of missionaries in what is called the Pacific Rim. Just think up and down the Pacific Coast there where you have China and you have Thailand and down through Indonesia and Malaysia, Japan, all of that region even coming across a bit. And and Southeastern Seminary is a missions-minded seminary. And we have uh, at our school a program called the Master of Divinity in International Church Planting. We call it the 2 plus 2 program. You say, why? Because for two years you're on our campus. Then two years, you're on the international mission field. And at the end of those four years, you receive your master's degree, and you're then eligible for career appointment with our mission agency. And so we were over there to minister and to be ministered to, to be honest with you. And uh, after we had been there for about a week and a half eating hotel food, morning, afternoon, evening, we decided to get uh, our students that were there, about 12, 14 of them, and take them somewhere out to eat. Well, they did some research, and believe it or not, in Pattaya, Thailand, they actually have a hard rock cafe. It's right there over by the ocean. And so they said, to Dr. Aiken, we want to go eat some hamburgers and some french fries. So we got a van that we rented, and we took them over to the hard rock cafe. Now, if you were ever to go to Pattaya, you come into the city down a main road, and so we were going back out of the city, just like this center aisle here, and then we took a left after going about three, maybe four miles because the Hard Rock Cafe was over by the ocean. Well, when we turned off that main road and headed toward uh, the, cafe, the cafe, the Hard Rock Cafe, suddenly I saw something I was absolutely unprepared for. Oh, I've heard about it, I've read about it, but I would never experienced it. You see, suddenly on both sides of the road for at least half a mile, and I'm not exaggerating at all, I saw on both sides of the road, literally thousands, of 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16-year-old prostitutes, thousands. Some were even dressed up like little schoolgirls with little short uh, plaid skirts and very seductively Uh, opened white tops. I would later find out from some of our missionary personnel that some of those little girls had been kidnapped. Some amazingly had been sold by their parents. And others had been taken by deception. You see, they send headhunters out into the villages looking for pretty little girls. And when they find one, they go to the mom and the dad, and they say something like this, you know, if you'll let us have your daughter, We can take her back to the city. We have a school. She can get a really good education, and then she can get a really good job, and she can help buy the family out of this poverty that you live. And so very unwittingly, they give their little girls to these headhunters never to see them again. And I was crushed. In fact, I still to this day think about it every day. Sometimes I even wake up having nightmares because of the, the, the memory is seared in my brain. And you know, as I saw that and experienced that, I begin to ask some important questions. I, I begin to ask the question, well, who's going to do something about this? I mean, this is so wrong. I mean, I don't care where you're coming from this morning as far as your worldview or your sense of right and wrong. I think we can all agree that's wrong. That's just not right, and those type of things should not happen. And, and I'm not trying to be unkind to anyone this morning, but most of the religions of this world don't really have a worldview. Uh, they don't really have a way of looking at life that would really highly motivate them to to get involved, to roll up their sleeves, and you know, really run some risk and get dirty and do something about something like that. And so it became very clear to me. Well, I, I know one that does. It's called Christianity. And we have both a master and we have a mandate that would indeed move us to get involved with the dirty parts of the world, to roll up our sleeves and jump in and try to be agents of change through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of course, then the question becomes, well, will we? Will we actually do something about the, the tragedies that just absolutely ravage the world today because of sin that are typified in that situation that I've, I've just shared? Will we become and will we be a great commission people? Well, in these verses, I think we find the characteristics of that very thing. And so as I said earlier, I know I'm speaking this morning to a great commission church. I know that. So what I'm here to do is just to kind of encourage you to keep doing what you're doing, uh, to remind you, as Paul says in this passage, of maybe some things that, that you have forgotten that need to be put back up uh, on the front burner, so to speak. But as we walk through the text, we just want to simply see what is it that needs to be my priorities, what is it that needs to be present in my life that indeed will allow me to have the same heartbeat for the nations that beats in the heart of Jesus. I have four of them I want to share with you very quickly. Number one, Great Commission people, they will be focused on the nations. In verse 14, Paul writes to the church at Rome, a church he has not yet ever visited, and he begins on a very positive note by telling them, I am aware of some things that you're doing that I want to commend. In fact, he, he notes three of them. Look at it, verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you. I'm pleased with you, my brothers, that you yourselves are, number one, full of goodness. Number two, filled with all knowledge, and number three, able to instruct one another. He says they are full of goodness. This was a church that was doing good things. This was a church that was about the business of being active in doing good things. And you know, most evangelical churches do good things. I don't know any evangelical church really that does bad stuff. Most evangelical churches that believe the Bible do Good things. But here's the the issue. We can be so busy doing many good things that we neglect to do the best and most important thing. In other words, most of us are not struggling with decisions between what is good and what is bad. But as followers of Jesus, we now have a different kind of issue. We have to make decisions between what is good and what is best. And Paul says, I know that you are doing many good things. You're full of goodness. Secondly, you're filled with all knowledge. Now, I think he has in mind primarily the knowledge of the gospel. So this was a church that knew the gospel. This was a church that believed the gospel. And this was a church because it is, as he says there, filled with all knowledge, was a well-informed, biblically-grounded, theologically-accurate church church. Now, here's what I want to say to you. A lot of times in the world in which I live, people will will set a dichotomy or, or they'll make a separation and they'll say, well, you can either love God really well with your mind or you can love God really well with your heart. Or if you like, you can be a really good theologian or you can be a really good missionary. And that is a false Dichotomy. You say, How can you say that? Well, let me just point this out. The greatest theologian who ever lived was also the greatest missionary who ever lived, and his name was Jesus. No one ever came further from home than he did when he left heaven and came to earth to die on that cross for your sins and my sins. So he was the greatest missionary and theologian who ever lived, the greatest Christian missionary who ever lived, in my judgment was also the greatest Christian theologian who ever lived, and his name was Paul. And so the fact of the matter is, you really can't be a good biblical theologian if you don't have a missionary heart. And you really can't be the kind of missionary that God wants you to be in whatever context he places you unless you also know what you believe and why you believe, and you also have the ability to think well theologically. David Livingston, that great missionary to Africa, said it so beautifully. He said, God had only one son, and God made him a missionary. And so the Bible says that they were indeed filled with goodness. They were filled with all knowledge, and he says, you are able to instruct or to admonish one another. That word instruct has the idea of, of challenging people to make uh, hard decisions based upon what they know. In other words, it's a word that means to rethink, uh, to reconsider. And so you, you examine things as they are, and if necessary, you make hard decisions to do the best things and to do the wise things. And so Paul says, church at Rome, I see a lot and I know a lot of good stuff that's going on there. But now verse 15, but nevertheless, on some points I have written to you very boldly, how? By way of reminder. And I'm not trying to pull rank as an apostle, though I could do so, but I do so because of the grace given to me by God. What I write to you is out of the overflow of God's grace in my life to what in Paul, to be a minister, that we might be ministers of Christ Jesus to the nations in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that, now don't miss this, so that the offering of the nations may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In other words, Paul would encourage us to give our financial resources as you all did just a few moments ago. But Paul would say the kind of offering that God really longs to receive is the offering of the nations as an acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit gift that you bring to me because your heartbeat is the same as my heartbeat. Now let's do a little analysis here. I mentioned the fact that he uses that word nations, ethne. Let's ask a question this uh, this morning. How many ethne are there in the world today? How many nations are there in the world today? You say, well, I, you know, it's a little under two hundred. No, no, no. I'm not talking about political entities. When you see the word nations in the Bible, you should think in categories of people groups. People that have their own culture, their own language, their own identity, their own uniqueness as a people. And so how many people groups are there in the world today? Well, people who study this uh, for a life calling, missiologists, tell us, and I checked this morning, by the way, let me commend a website to you, the Joshua Project. You go to the Joshua Project, I actually get their update every single day, and you can go there and get all sorts of interesting and accurate statistics about where things are today. Well, as of this morning, according to the Joshua Project, there are 9,756 distinctive people groups among the 7.1 billion people on planet Earth. 9,756. Now, here's the really big question. How many are unreached? How many are not being reached with the gospel? The answer, 4,083, which according to the International Mission Board constitutes probably close to 3.68 billion people. 3.68 billion people. In other words, and this is how we teach it in our missions classes at my school, there are places in the world today where you and I could be dropped by helicopter or parachute. We hit the ground, and we start walking, and we would walk days, we would walk weeks, we would walk months, we would never see a church, and we would never even meet one single Christian. Christian. Now listen to me, if the Bible is true, and I believe that it is, that means there are around the world today hundreds of millions, yea, several billion. They will be born, they will live, they will die, and they will go to hell and they never even one time heard the name of Jesus. Oh, God will not judge them for their rejection of the gospel. He will judge them on the basis of how they responded to his revelation, both in nature and in conscience. But the Bible says of the whole world in Romans chapter 1, they are without excuse. And yet the Bible also teaches Jesus Christ died for every single one of them. And he longs, his heartbeat is that that gospel message would get to them. Oswald Smith, the wonderful missionary, said it this way, no one has the right to hear the gospel twice until everyone has had the opportunity to hear it at least once. No one should have the right to hear the gospel twice until everyone has had an opportunity to hear it at least once. Carl F.H. Henry, the great theologian of the last century, said it so simply but so clearly. The gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. And so the Bible says a Great Commissioned people will be focused on the nations. Number two, a gospel-centered people will be the evidences of a Great Commissioned people. We will be a Christ-centered people. Paul never got over the fact that God saved him both in terms of his sin and then called him to be a servant of the gospel. So at least 12 times in Romans 15... He refers to our Christ, the Messiah. Five times he calls him the Savior. In verse 16, look at it. He says, we are his minister. I am a minister of Christ Jesus. He says in verse 17, what I do, I do only to glory or boast in Christ. I'm not going to brag about anything I've done because any good thing that I do is the result of Christ living and working in me. In other words, Paul was what I call a Christ-intoxicated person. He was a Christ-intoxicated person. He thought about Christ. He lived for Christ. The very air that he breathed was Christ. Henry Martin was a wonderful missionary to India and Persia. In God's mysterious province, he took this man at the age of 31. I don't understand. He was a genius. He picked up languages just like that. I mean, he was just absolutely off-the-scale brilliant in terms of his mind. But he was also a very uh, active journaler. And Henry Martin made this very simple but, again, very profound statement. The Spirit of Christ is the spirit of missions. The nearer we get to Jesus, the more intensely missionary we will become. The spirit of Christ is the spirit of missions. The nearer we get to Jesus, the more missionary we will become. And so it is my prayer that in my life and that in your life, you and I would be Jesus-intoxicated people because the nearer we get to Christ, the nearer we get to his heart. And what is the heartbeat of Christ? It is the heartbeat of of mission. So, we will be focused on the nations. We'll be a Christ-centered people in all that we do. Number three, we will be gospel-saturated in all that we do. We'll be gospel-saturated in all that we do. Four times in verses 16 through 29, Paul refers to the gospel if you look at it in verse sixteen, he calls it the gospel of God, and then in verse nineteen and later in verse twenty-nine, he calls it the gospel of Christ. Now, if you've been studying the Bible for a long time, if I were to ask you this particular question, you'd probably be able to give me the right answer. The question is this: What is the key verse in Romans? If if I were looking for the theme verse of Romans, what 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 we what, what might we say that is? And I think probably you say oh, that's easy, Danny. It's Romans 1:16, and maybe also add in verse 17, and I would agree with you. Paul writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so Paul tells us from the very beginning of his book, I'm going to write to you and talk to you about the power of this wonderful thing called the gospel. Now, what do we mean when we talk about the gospel? In other words, if I were to pass out to all of you a blank sheet of paper, and I would just say, in 50 words or less, write down your understanding of the gospel. What would you write down? Now, you might say, Danny, 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 Danny. This is a very faithful Bible teaching church. Don't you uh, think that the gospel is being taught here? Oh, I absolutely believe the gospel is being taught here. Well, don't you think then that all of us know what the gospel is? No, I don't think that all of us know what the gospel is. You see, it's so easy to be seduced in this particular area and to get wrong ideas. I think too many people think of the gospel like Mark Twain spoke of the church several years into his life toward the, toward the latter part. Actually, Mark Twain was asked, well, what do you think the church is? And Mark Twain said, I'll tell you what the church is. The church is good people standing in front of good people telling them how to be good. Not no, the church is not full of good people, is it? Church is full of bad people who happen to be forgiven people. That's who we are. We're, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, let me just be clear. We're not good people. We're like really bad people, okay? You have to be fearful, I don't think, that we're going to do something to you bad, but we're, we're bad people. We just happen to be forgiven people. That's what the gospel is. A few years ago, I received a phone call from a former student whose name is Will Graham. Will Graham happens to be the grandson of a man named Billy Graham, who turned 96 just a couple of days ago. And Will called me and said, "Uh, uh, Dr. Aiken, would you like to meet my granddaddy? And I said, Let me pray about that. Yes. I would like to meet your granddaddy, and I confess I did not pray about that. There's some things you don't have to pray about, and meeting Billy Graham was one of them. And so a couple of weeks later, my wife Charlotte and I got to go over to Black Mountain just outside of Asheville, North Carolina, up that mountain, and we got to go into his home and spend two hours with Billy Graham. And let me tell you, it was awesome. I, I was not disappointed. He was, he was even more wonderful than I already thought that he was. He was gracious and kind and humble and just, just, a, just the epitome of a Christ follower. Well, as we were sitting there talking, uh, I uh, said, you know, Dr. Graham, I've heard you say for years and years and years that you believe that on any given Sunday, probably half the people sitting out there in our congregation They're lost. They're not truly born again. They've never been converted. Do you you still believe that? And he said to me, no, I I don't believe that anymore. I now believe the number is much higher. And I said, why do you think that? And he said, because they have not understood and they have not believed the gospel. So before I go on, I want to just pause and make very clear, based upon the Bible, what the gospel is so that if you leave today, even if you leave not a Christian, you at least leave understanding what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news that God loves you so much. He sent his son into this world where his son lived a perfect, sinless life. He always obeyed the will of God perfectly. He's the only person who's ever done that in all of history. And because he lived a perfect, sinless life, the penalty of sin, which is death, did not belong to him. But out of great love for you and me, he chose to die in our place. And when Jesus Christ died on that cross, he bore in his body the full penalty of our sin. You see, he did live the life that we should have lived and didn't. He then died the death that you and I should have died, and he paid the penalty that we should have to pay. And he did all that out of great love for you and me. He was your substitute. He bore in your place the wrath and the judgment of God. Now you say, well, how do I know that God accepted his sacrifice on that cross? Because three days later, God raised him from the dead. And there's an empty tomb that declares God has accepted the death of his son as a just and righteous pavement for sinners. And so now that he has paid in full the penalty of our sin, what we simply do is extend an empty hand. And we receive the free gift of eternal life as we repent of our sin and we place our faith and our trust in him and him alone. To say it in a striking way that I promise you, you'll never forget. In fact, at first, it's probably going to make you uneasy, but let me fill it out. God killed his son so that he would not have to kill you. God killed his son out of great love for you and me so that he would not have to kill us. You say, where did you get that? From Isaiah 53, where in verse 10, the Bible says it pleased God to crush him. It pleased God to crush his son. Yes, it pleased God to crush his son so that he would not have to crush you and he would not have to crush, crush me. That, that's the gospel. That's the good news. Or let me say it another way. I want to make sure you get it. The gospel is the good news that the person who has Jesus plus nothing actually has Everything. The person who has Jesus as their Savior, though they have nothing, actually they have everything. And in contradistinction, the person who has everything minus Jesus, actually you've got nothing. Jesus himself said, what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world but lose his soul? This became so real to me a couple of years ago. My wife and I were in the Sudan. We'd gone there to do a a big Bible conference. It was amazing. People from the Congo, Uganda, and the Sudan came to Kajikeji, uh, South Sudan. Probably 1,500, maybe 1,700 people there. This was amazing. I found out most of them walked. Most of them walked. In fact, the folks from the Congo, I was informed, walked for a week. Every night they would put a mat down outside. They would lie on that cot and then in the morning when the sun came up they would get up roll up their cot and go through the activities of the day and then at the end of the week they walked another week back home one of the people that we met during that conference was a young man named Sam we called him pastor Sam Sam had been raised in Uganda and one day as he was playing on the outskirts of his village a cultic marauding tribe came in and killed his mother killed his dad killed all of his brothers and sisters He saw it with his own eyes as a little boy. But there was a wonderful couple in another village that took him in. They were a Christian family. They led Sam to Christ. At about the age of 19, Sam sensed the call to be a pastor. So he came to Kajikeji where there's a little Bible institute. And he was trained for two years. And now he was going to go out and plant a church. And in fact, he did plant a church that met and still meets under three mango trees about 15 miles outside of Kajikeji. We wanted to bless him as we were going back home. And so we got together with the leadership. They gave us some suggestions of how we could really help him. And so we got him together before we left, and we got in a circle around him, and we prayed over him. And then we said, Sam, we want to bless you. Uh, We want to bless you as we leave. And so here's what we've done. We've been able to put together some resources, and we're going to buy you two ox, a plow, and enough seed to plow the land adjacent to those three mango trees where you're going to be pastoring that church. And, and, and also, some of us have been blessed uh, at this stage in our lives, and so we put together the finances to buy your tukul. Now, a tukul is a satch hut. It's the thing that most all these farmers live in. And so, if you were to go to, uh, to the Sudan today and meet Pastor Sam, You would meet a man who owns two sets of clothes and a pair of sandals, a Bible, two ox, a plow, some seed, and a tuchel. That is all he has in this world. And yet you would meet a man that the joy of the Lord Jesus is so evident in his countenance, you think, my Lord, I must be meeting and talking to an angel. He is a happy man. He is a joyful man. And by the way the world measures wealth, he has nothing. But by the way heaven measures wealth, he has everything. And you see, he makes it so clear. The person who has Jesus, though they have nothing, they've got everything. But you can be here this morning and have everything this world offers. If you don't have the Lord Jesus, you've really got nothing. And that's what the heart of the gospel is all about. So we have to be focused on the nations. We have to be a Christ-centered people. And we want to be gospel-saturated in all that we do. And then finally, we will be passionate for the unreached people of the world. Passionate. For the unreached, unengaged people of the world. Now, this is where Paul kind of gets in our in our business a little bit. Look at what he says there in verse 18. And I'll just read and make comments along the way. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the nations to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, and by the power of the Spirit of God. Anything that's been done to reach the nations with the gospel, Christ did it all. And so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, what used to be the country of Yugoslavia, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and I do make it my ambition. I do aspire to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Now look at verse 22. This is the reason, then, why I have so often been hindered from coming to you, but, now don't miss this, Now, since I no longer have any reason for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I do hope to see you, but only in passing as I go to Spain and be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. Verse 23, I no longer have any room for work in these regions. Paul, what are you saying? Are you saying all the people who need to hear the gospel have heard the gospel in those regions? And Paul would say, I'm not saying that. Well, then are you saying all the churches that need to be planted have been planted? And Paul would say, I'm not saying that either. Well, then Paul, help me out. What are you saying? And here's what Paul is saying. At least now, in those places, there is a gospel presence. But there are other places in the world, like Spain, where there's no church, there are no missionaries, there are no Christians, and God has burdened my heart with his heart, and I have to be about the business of getting the gospel to those places that as of yet have never even one time heard the name of Jesus. Now, I mentioned earlier over 4,000 people groups that are unreached and unengaged. Over three and a half billion people who have yet to hear the name of Jesus. Why? How can that be? We've got so many resources. My goodness. We've got such incredible technology and ability to, uh, to, to, to move mobilely in terms of transportation. How can it be that we're still at this point in time? In other words, almost half the world is still unreached with the gospel. In the year 1900, about half of the world was unreached with the gospel. So we have not cut down on that percentage at all. Now... I do not wish to be unkind this morning, and I'm not here to send guilt tripping uh, on anybody. That's not my agenda, all right? But I do want to address this issue, and there's a particular group of people here today that I need to speak to specifically. And so those of you that are not a part of that group, you can either tune out for the next five minutes or eavesdrop if you would like. That'd be fine. But the group that I want to talk to is the men, is the men. Because I've become very acutely aware of the fact that probably the reason we are where we are in terms of not reaching the unreached and unengaged is that men have failed to, to be who God created them and saved them to be. You say, why do you say that? Well, as I've traveled, I became acutely aware of the fact that there were a lot of places where there were a lot of sisters serving the Lord and there were no men, none. So I called the International Mission Board a few years ago and I said, I'm just curious, we've got 5,000 missionaries, what's the gender breakdown? And they said, well, that'd be hard to, to give you, but I said, okay, Let's just take one program that we sponsor, the journeyman program. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but within our International Mission Board, the journeyman program works like this. You graduate from college and you're not married. You can go on the international mission field for two years, not five, not ten, two years. And we basically foot most of the cost for that. And we will send you overseas to work among an unreached or unengaged people group to share the gospel. So... I said, the journeyman program. They called me back a couple of days later, and they said, we got those numbers. I said, great, what are they? And these have not changed a whole lot in the last couple of years. I just remember this number very distinctly because I was informed, well, as of this particular moment, we have 331 journey girls on the mission field and 126 journey men on the mission field, two and a half more times our sisters than our brothers. Oh, it gets worse. A vice president called me a few days later. I thought he was calling to fuss at me because he said, Hey, I understand you've been snooping around about uh, some statistics related to men and women on the mission field. And I said, Well, yeah, I was just kind of curious. He said, Oh, that's fine with me. He said, Let me tell you about West Africa. West Africa, at least at that moment, was the most difficult region in the world for us to get people into. He said, It's hot, it's arid, it's poor, and it's dangerous. It is infested with radical Islam, so if you go to West Africa, for the most part, yeah, you, your life is uh, in a somewhat precarious context. He said, but God's been really good. and the last several years, we've had an influx of journeymen willing to go, and so he said, as of this particular moment, we have 50 journeymen serving in West Africa, 48 females and two males. And I mean, I was like, wow. How how does that happen? And guys, listen to me. Listen to me. Right or wrong, a woman is not going to be able to lead a Muslim man to Christ anywhere in the world. It's not happening because they're not going to listen and you're not going to have the opportunity So if men aren't on the mission field in these Muslim contexts, we're condemning millions of men to hell without the chance to hear the gospel because they're only going to listen to a man, a man talking to a man. And I've been asking myself for several years now, why is this? And I don't really know all the answers. I've been told that one of the reasons a lot of men don't go on the mission field is because they have addictions to pornography and mission organizations in their interview process find that out. They won't send them. I've been told that sometimes it's debt and they've got the data on this. Do you know that uh, parents in particular, a father, is more apt to foot the bill for his daughter going through college than he is his son? I didn't know that, but that's what I've been told. Then I've been told that there's sometimes this parental pressure where a young man goes to college, God gets a hold of his heart, he comes back to his parents and says, I'm thinking about going to the mission field, and the dads blow a gasket and say, wait, 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 wait. I didn't send you to college to waste an education. I sent you to college to get a good education so you get a good job and make money. And what what are you doing? Have you lost your mind? Have you lost your mind? And in one particular instance, I have a friend that uh, was told, well, let me tell you one thing, boy, don't you dare go asking any of my friends to assist you in going to the mission field. I didn't waste $75,000 for you to go give your life to nothing. And then sometimes I just think we as men have been seduced by the idols of the Western world and our value system is just so screwed up, we can't think rightly about this stuff. God gave me an illustration that I've used several times, and I'll close with this, that just kind of helps, I think, clarify the issue. And again, not trying to send you on a guilt trip. I'm just trying to ask you, think through if this scenario were actually come to pass in your life, what, what answer would you give to God? God appears to you tonight in a dream, and God says to you, I'm going to give you a son, or for those of you that are my age, I'm going to give you a grandson. And here's the deal. I'm going to let you pick the course of his life. I'm going to let you determine what his life will be like and the destiny that he will live in this lifetime. Now, I'm just going to give you two options. I'm just going to give you two options. And this will explain why God gave me this particular thought, because I'm from the South. I'm from actually from Georgia, but I live in North Carolina. So being from Georgia, I'm like an off-the-scale SEC football fan, although last night I saw your pastor during the Alabama game I don't even know how to describe the experience that I was subjected to last night, but um, I think he needs to be on drugs and in therapy. That's just my own opinion, But, but just think about that, okay? And so I'm like a huge SEC guy, and so here's my illustration. God gives you this son or grandson. And he says to you, your son can live one of two lives. And here's the first one. Your son can grow up to be a four-time All-American ad and just fill in your favorite school, okay? He'll be a four-time All-American. In fact, not only will he be a four time All American, he will be a first round draft choice in the NFL and he will be a perennial All Pro. He's going to make like hundreds of millions of dollars and he's going to be a household name and he's going to be famous. And that is destiny one for your son or your grandson. Destiny number two, he's going to be a missionary. He's going to be a missionary. And because he's going to be a missionary, I'm going to send him to an unreached people group thousands of miles away. let me just go ahead and tell you in advance, he's going to go there, and he's never coming back. He will live there, and he will die there, and he'll be buried there. And after a few years, the only persons that will even care that he's over there is you and his mother and me. But I will know that he's there. And I will work through his life while he's there. And I'll even work through his death. And because he took that course that you determined for him, there's going to be an unreached people group gathered around the throne in heaven, praising the name of the Lamb because of the life and death and ministry of your child. Now, you make the call. You make the call. I share this at a church in Raleigh, North Carolina. After the service, a woman came up to me. Her husband was such a wimp. He didn't have the guts to come up to me. But a woman came up to me and said, well, my husband wanted you to know that he would pick the sports career for our son. He would not want him to waste his life as a missionary. God gave me four sons. I now have five and a sixth grandson on the way. I pray that they will grow up to love the Lord Jesus. And I pray for them and my granddaughters, which I have five of. God, if you'd be so kind, it would thrill this dad and granddad's heart that they might be a missionary. See, the the Spirit of Christ is the spirit of missions, isn't it? And the nearer we get to Jesus, the more missionary we will become.